This is Glenn Tiffert, manager of the Hoover Institution's project on Taiwan in the Indo-Pacific region. On behalf of Hoover, I would like to welcome you to the project's inaugural podcast, which presents the panel discussion from a live online event held on May 7, 2020, entitled Taiwan and the COVID-19 Pandemic, Lessons for the World. The event included a keynote presentation by Taiwan's Vice President, Dr. Chen Jianren, and closing remarks by the Science and Technology Advisor to the U.S. Secretary of State, Dr. Meng Chiang, and the Principal Deputy Assistant Secretary of State in the Bureau of Oceans and International Environmental and Scientific Affairs, Mr. Jonathan Moore. A video of those segments is available on hoover.org and the Hoover Institution's YouTube channel. Having just heard from Vice President Chen, it is my pleasure to introduce the panel portion of our program, a series of short presentations by eminent experts from Taiwan and the Hoover Stanford community on the public health, rule of law, civil society, and global dimensions of Taiwan's fight against the COVID-19 pandemic. Each of our speakers has too many accomplishments and distinctions to list here, and I hope they will forgive me if I limit myself to just a few. Dr. Jason Wong is a professor at Stanford Medical School and director of its Center for Policy Outcomes and Prevention. Dr. Wong has an MD degree from Harvard Medical School and a PhD in policy analysis from RAND. Early in his career, he was project manager for the Task Force on Reforming Taiwan's National Health Insurance System, and he has a number of publications in the area of health insurance reform and quality assessment. Second, we turn to Professor Zhang Wenzhen, Dean of National Jiaotong University Law School, and also a law professor at National Taiwan University. She is an expert on comparative constitutionalism, especially in East Asia, and on international human rights law, and has many publications in these areas. She received her JSD degree from Yale Law School. Third, we will hear from Professor Fan Yun, who teaches in the sociology department at National Taiwan University. She received her PhD from Yale, her publications include a 2019 book entitled Social Movements in Taiwan's Democratic Transition. Earlier this year, she was elected to Taiwan's Legislative Yuan. And finally, we close this part of the program by considering some of the lessons other nations might draw from Taiwan's experience fighting COVID-19. Hoover Research Fellow Lan He Chen is Director of Domestic Policy Studies in the Public Policy Program at Stanford. He served as a senior official in the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services during the administration of George W. Bush and has advised several U.S. presidential campaigns. He has a JD and PhD, both from Harvard, and appears frequently as a contributor or analyst in U.S. media. Each panelist will speak for about 10 minutes, after which we will have a short Q&A period before moving on to the final part of our program. You will notice at the bottom of your screen a small thought bubble icon that will engage the chat function of the WebEx client. I encourage you to submit questions to me over chat, and time permitting, I will select a few for our panelists to engage with. Jason, I turn the proceedings over to you. Thank you. Um, it's always very difficult to follow the vice president uh, of Taiwan in, in any lecture, uh, but I'm going to try. Uh, so this, this go back a little bit to what was happening in the early uh, 2020. So Taiwan just had a presidential election on January 11th of 2020. And it was a very contested presidential election uh, with 75% of the uh, eligible uh, voters voted in that election. So uh, in a democracy, you really need to uh, pay attention to how you manage uh, any sort of crisis, and, and this is the type of sort of uh, competition between the parties to really uh, trying to uh, get confidence and trust uh, in public health crisis management. And Taiwan is about 81 miles uh, off the coast of China. Uh, it has about 23 million people. Last year, uh, 2.7 million visitors uh, came from the mainland to Taiwan. And there's about 1 million Taiwanese either working or living in China. So lots of traffic. And also, uh, uh, this happened around the time of Lunar New Year's, where hundreds of millions of Chinese and Taiwanese were expected to travel during this time, setting up sort of a perfect storm uh, for a crisis. And, um, and prior to this, I think uh, Taiwan was uh, preparing for um, misinformation campaign because 
of the presidential uh, election. And it has secured a lot of its databases and understood a lot of what the government databases were located, what elements were in there. And so that also inadvertently uh, prepared Taiwan for this type of crisis in terms of using data, big data analytics, using technology. So let's go back to 17 years ago during SARS. And the, the vice president talked about, you know, we learned a lot from SARS and, and during uh, the, that crisis uh, to prepare for COVID-19. And so in that crisis, uh, there were 73 deaths during SARS and 346 cases. 94% uh, of all known infections were transmitted inside the hospital. All major hospitals were either fully or partially shut down. Doctors and nurses quit for fear of catching the disease because of inadequate hospital infection control. Fever clinics were set up a little late outside of hospitals to prevent infection in waiting rooms. And there was an infected laundry worker at Hoping Hospital who became a super spreader. And the entire Hoping Hospital, 450 beds, were shut down and quarantined all 930 staff and 240 patients. They were locked in. And during that time, the public didn't understand what quarantine uh, was supposed to do. They thought they were getting incarcerated. So many evaded uh, quarantines. And, and, and so uh, it was a, a, a big public health issue during that time. So Taiwan has since learned a lot from how to deal with the crisis because of what happened during SARS. Uh, immediately after SARS, it had uh, amended the Communicable Disease Control Act at many levels over many, many years. Uh, one of them is uh, to make sure they have enough protective equipment stockpiles. The other one is, is to set up a uh, national health command center that integrates the three different command centers. And this was actually uh, an idea that was shared to Taiwan by the United States. Uh, the United States had a command center and it was very well uh, organized and they shared with Taiwan. Also, it allowed regulation of gatherings, entry, exit of people, traffic, evacuation, travel restrictions. Uh, it allowed for penalties uh, for violating home quarantine and isolation. It allowed for tracking and management of people uh, under infectious risk uh, in order to protect the public. Uh, it allowed for geographic location and total number of patients made public in aggregate, not by individuals allow for the use of public properties and requisitions, use of private land and production uh, uh, facilities uh, for making sure that people have adequate uh, equipment uh, to fight against epidemic. And also allows for compensation of individuals and subsidies to businesses. And so a lot of these things were done over many, many years after the SARS crisis. The other thing that uh, about uh, notable about the National Health Command Center is that it integrated the Central Epidemic Command Center, the Biological Pathogen Disaster Command Center, and the Bioterrorism Command Center, all under one command. And it allowed for uh, a, a, a physical structure which is located on the seventh floor of the Taiwan CDC that could accommodate 100 people at a time. Uh, it has data analyst rooms conference rooms, it has a press room, so you know people could inform the public what was happening. It has a coordination center, it has a lounge for people to take a nap. So they created a physical structure and they do drills uh, year to year. It's sort of like our fire drills here, or uh, you know, our, um, uh, in, and Taiwan has a lot of uh, disasters like uh, earthquakes, typhoons. And so a lot of times these sort of public health preparedness is not just for viral infections, but for all sorts of different natural disasters. Um, and so let's, let's go back to, to what happened during COVID-19. So soon after uh, Taiwan had recognized that this was going to uh, be another potential crisis, uh, it started to uh, have public health officials board on the planes of, uh, of flights coming from Wuhan and to check on symptoms of the passengers. Uh, soon after that, uh, at, uh, on January 20th, it activated the National Health Command Center. And then they had a National Security Council meeting, basically to make sure all levels of government were organized to fight the crisis. And then it stopped to 
to allow uh, people coming in from Wuhan because that was the epicenter. And then as the disease started to spread, it, it puts travel restrictions on more and more places. Now on January 27th, they decided that they need to uh, send bad files from the national uh, from the immigration and customs database to the national health insurance database in batch files of the last 14 day travel so that when the doctor sees the patient he or she could recognize that this person just came from Wuhan maybe I should put on protective gear wear gloves maybe I should test for COVID-19 on this patient and that has a little bit more travel history so at the point of care allow doctors to have more information uh, uh, to better assess the patient and protect himself or, or herself. And this data, big data integration was uh, possible because it had secured all its databases and know what the elements are in there. And the integration from immigration data set to the uh, public health data set, uh, the national health insurance data set was, was one day. They did that in one day. And the other thing that they did was they triage patients at the airports and other ports. So you could imagine there are lots of travelers coming from everywhere. So you need to be able to tell high risk from low risk. So they had people scanning a QR code that leads to an online declaration form. And then basically you have to fill out your travel history, you have to fill out any symptoms, respiratory symptoms or fever, and you put down your contact information, which includes your cell phone number and the place you're staying in Taiwan or your residence. And this really allows the, uh, the immigration officials to quickly triage into two groups, high risk group that had traveled to level three alert countries and low risk group that were allowed to pass through. So the high risk group needed to do uh, home quarantine for 14 days. And during that time, the government take care of you by providing food, they give you a book to read, they give you lots of masks, and then also uh, they check up on you three times a day uh, to make sure that you're not getting sicker. And if you are, they will help you to triage to a care facility. So all of these things uh, are done uh, in a very sort of deliberate and an efficient manner. And so I think what had the outcomes of this is that uh, as of today, uh, there are 439 cases and six deaths. And given the initial risk of uh, having been predicted the second highest importation risk by Johns Hopkins, they've done remarkably well. Baseball is now playing in Taiwan. And, and also um, uh, schools are open, uh, people go to work, people go to school. Uh, the future challenges would include uh, social media disinformation continuing, uh, I think, uh, from China and, 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 and trying to sort of uh, make sure that it's, it's sort of under control, continuing to detect and contain new imported cases. Uh, more recently, it's been coming from Europe and the United States and, and sort of the victim of their own success. And balancing emergency powers and maintaining civil liberties under that environment. So to conclude, I think Taiwan has done well uh, this time uh, because it was well prepared. It has the right logic uh, to figure out that this might be human to human transmission. It has the right sequence of, of doing things. Uh, because it, it tells people that uh, they have they don't have enough masks and then they produce more and then they uh, allow uh, then people to also donate masks so the the sequence is correctly and then the tempo was was done correctly too so it was, some actions were taken very very quickly 124 items within five weeks uh, were implemented at the beginning of the crisis that allowed them to have a more relaxed tempo later on, and they articulated very well uh, to the public on what they were doing. So um, I think it's so far been uh, a success story and, and we'll see if it's could maintain uh, this particular uh, uh, crisis, during this particular crisis, maintain this type of success. Thank you. Thank you very much, Jason. I think we're gonna cut right now to uh, Zhang Wenzhen. Thank you for having me and it's been a privilege uh, for me to uh, also share the experience of Taiwan's combating the COVID-19 in the rule of law perspective. I would also like to show some of the provisions that uh, both Jason and our vice president has uh, mentioned uh, in terms of the uh, Communicable Di Control Disease Act. So uh, in terms of the rule of law perspective, I think uh, 
for a, a global uh, pandemic such as COVID-19 challenges not only public health law, uh, public health expertise, uh, government uh, capacities, but also more importantly, rule of law uh, in terms of uh, the aspects of human rights protection, the aspects of uh, separation of powers, and even uh, the central local authorities. And as we uh, have heard our vice president, as well as Jason, talking about the uh, Communicable Disease Control Act, and also the experiences from uh, SARS uh, in 2009. I think uh, in the rule of law perspective, uh, the uh, CDC Act, as I would call Communicable Disease Control Act, really paved the legal ground for many, many effectively uh, imposed measures uh, that we have this time. So the CDC Act was last amended uh, just last year and it uh, stipulates uh, five categories of communicable diseases and establish the central command authority, as Jason just mentioned, uh, on the top floor of our uh, health ministry. And most importantly, uh, it really has a very elaborate provisions authorizing regulatory measures, including inspection, quarantine, isolation, inbound and outbound travel restrictions, requisition and taking, and most importantly, compensations. Before I uh, elaborate further on those uh, issues, I think uh, when a lot of people criticize, uh, if I may say so, uh, the restrictive measures uh, in Taiwan imposed uh, so far uh, have not yet looked into the two provisions I think most central to the CDC uh, Act. So these two provisions are really uh, the Article 10 and Article 11. So Article 10 of the CDC Act uh, regulates that the government organizations, medical institutions, medical personnel, and others who learn about information related to patients or suspected patients with communicable diseases. Uh, they should be uh, confidential about their names, medical record, and medical history. So uh, all these informations shall not be disclosed. And most importantly, uh, Article 64 of the same act imposes uh, quite serious administrative fines to those medical personnel or persons who learn about all these information through their work. And uh, if they re, uh, release or uh, disclose these informations. And also uh, Article 11 of the CDC Act prescribes that the dignity and legal rights of patients. Okay, so the Article 11 of the CDC Act particularly protects the dignity and legal rights of patients with communicable diseases. And, uh, and they even provide the grounds uh, on which these uh, uh, persons uh, with communicable diseases or suspected of uh, having those diseases should not be treated uh, discriminatory, uh, shall be respected with their rights and their families shall be respected. And I think as a result of these two uh, provisions, that so far uh, Taiwan has uh, incorporated a practice uh, that's been, if you have watching, uh, if you have been watching uh, the, the uh, Central Command Authority's daily briefings, then you will realize that uh, they only report to the case numbers and they have been quite confidential about the detailed information of those possibly uh, contracted with any uh, 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 communicable diseases such as COVID-19. And I think this has been due to these two provisions. And I think our central authority has been doing a good job uh, on this uh, in order to keep privacy protection and in order to also to keep uh, the personal uh, information of those uh, 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 confirmed cases of uh, uh, COVID-19. You might be surprised if I will be able to show you uh, uh, all the provisions throughout the screen is that all key measures such as quarantine, isolation, um, 
social distancing and uh, inbound outbound travel restrictions and all these measures that also uh, Jason have talked about uh, have been already written in specific terms in CDC Act. And I would uh, particularly like to mention about a uh, quarantine. Uh, as our vice president and also Jason mentioned, back to 2003, we weren't uh, not sure about the nature of the quarantine and uh, the legality and constitutionality of that quarantine uh, measure was actually later on challenged uh, at our constitutional court. And uh, the court then uh, issued a very uh, important uh, decision that is interpretation number 690. In that very decision, uh, the court uh, confirmed the constitutionality of the quarantine uh, measures, despite the fact that the court also recognized the serious restrictive nature of those quarantine um, measures. And therefore, uh, the court particularly asked the administrative authority to provide compensation for those required for quarantine or isolation for combating uh, COVID-19 or any other communicable uh, uh, diseases. And I think that's important. So this time around, people understand those being quarantined or those being required for isolation uh, were really sacrificing their own individual personal freedoms for public goods. And while these measures are legal, they must be compensated. And, uh, and I think uh, that is really uh, uh, what's being uh, uh, important about uh, this time around, because then uh, it really uh, uh, increased people's cooperation and also the societal acceptance for those quarantine uh, measures. And uh, I would like to mention in particular, uh, the contact tracing. Uh, a lot of people uh, discuss uh, or criticize about contact tracing uh, measures, uh, arguing that it lacks some sort of legal grounds in our CDC uh, uh, relevant provisions, but it's actually not. So if you look into the CDC Act, Article 48 already provided competent authorities uh, to trace uh, those uh, people who have been in contact with patients affected by communicable diseases or who are suspected of being infected. So the legal basis for government uh, to conduct counter tracing uh, was not a problem. What's being uh, problematic or being uh, criticized by the legal community or in the perspective of law is uh, what's being uh, uh, described as a success uh, data uh, surveillance or uh, the high technology uh, way of uh, uh, doing it. So you all know, and Taiwan is very famous now uh, to have the integration or merger of the travel and health data. And uh, this has been uh, promoted, uh, uh, promoted to some uh, criticisms. And yet, uh, Article 17 of our Personal Data Protection Act provides for public interest exception. And uh, also for those who contracted COVID-19 or other communicable diseases or suspected of having such contraction, they are also obligated by law uh, to, uh, uh, without any reservation, provide the information to the competent authority. So there's a legal base uh, to to compulsory uh, demand such information from individuals. The problem is whether the use of technology, the integration of the two independently obtained uh, uh, information can be uh, then you know, uh, used for such a purpose. If we read the law uh, in a more expensive way, I think we can find uh, possibilities or permissions for the government to have the merger of travel and health data this time, and also uh, to read the uh, Personal Data Protection Act more expensively. There's also the space for permission for the government to, uh, to use and to have a collaborative use of phone signals, a credit card purchasing information, 
uh, and all that to trace uh, possible contacts of the individuals suspected about having the diseases. And again, as I said, Article 9, 10, 11, 12 of the CDC Act require uh, any authority, even the public-private persons, having such uh, information to keep confidentiality. They are not. They are obligated not to disclose any of these informations. But still, these are personal sensitive informations. Whether uh, the expensive reading of the present law allows the government uh, for doing that, uh, for you know, uh, uh, having these uh, big data use and surveillance for effective contact tracing uh, remains uh, debated. So I think uh, after this time around, if we really find uh, these more effective technological methods should be used, should be deployed uh, as a more effective uh, method for combating transmissible uh, diseases, I think we should uh, uh, write it more specifically into the law and also uh, into the uh, further uh, uh, regulations uh, for uh, reflection. And uh, I cut short of many other things, but I, I want to uh, uh, discuss or uh, or uh, as a con as one of the concluding remarks is that so Taiwan's uh, success in this time around of uh, combating COVID-19 uh, is not only due to uh, the very effective uh, public health authorities and teams but also uh, from a quite elaborate legal regime, such as CDC Act, uh, which certainly uh, was built upon many, many past experiences. And so it would be uh, uh, too, I think it would be too uh, harsh a criticism to say uh, these restrictive measures uh, do not have a sufficient legal grounds. And I think also because of this, uh, comparing to many other countries, we're trying to uh, look ways, uh, legal ways, and even need to declare emergency orders, uh, 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 resorting to even more restrictive nature of extra constitutional measures. Taiwan need not to do that because we already have over years a very elaborate legal regime uh, for that purpose. Thank yes. you, Professor Chang. Yes. Now we turn over to uh, Professor Fan. Hello, everybody. It is really my uh, honor as well as pleasure to join this panel to share my observations about Taiwan's fight against the coronavirus. Uh, based on my past participation and research on Taiwan's, uh, Taiwanese civil society and the democracy, I think the comparatively successful experiences of Taiwan in containing the spread of the COVID-19 lays on the four decades experiences of the civil society in fighting, negotiating, and cooperating with the state. In the following presentation, I will use three keywords to illustrate the role of civil society in fighting against the, uh, this pandemic. The first keyword is trust. In contrast to China, Taiwanese citizens trust the democratic government, and the government also trusts its people. I think this is one of the reasons that Taiwan can prevent a major outbreak of COVID-19. The central government hosts a daily live stream afternoon press conference to update the COVID-19 situation. Uh, based of the government's trans uh, because of the government's transparency and openness about the related information on the daily basis, therefore Taiwanese citizens trust the government and voluntarily obey the major order by the government. As a result, the government doesn't need to use fines or heavy policing to enforce the rules like wearing masks, social distancing, and body temperature monitoring in public spaces. On the other hand, government also trusts the people. Right after the Dr. Li Wenliang, whistleblower in Wuhan Central Hospital, warned his colleague about a possible uh, outbreak of a disease that resembles SARS on December 31 last year. Taiwanese Netherlands 
circulated the piece of information on the internet to warn people. In response to it, the government promptly started to monitor passengers from Wuhan and established the Central Epidemic Command Center in January to handle prevention measures. Because of the trust between the society and the state, the civil society also plays a significant role in supporting the local government to build up the prevention network. For example, the well-known Buddhist NGO Ciji offered the care packages for some local governments to provide to those uh, to, to provide to those being obliged to undergo a 14-day home quarantine. Each care package contains instant food, self-care health items, and even 14-day free access code to online film or bookstore platform. Many local residents also volunteer in communities to serve those being home quarantined for some chores like garbage removal. The second keyword about the role of Taiwanese uh, civil society during the pandemic is counterbalance. Taiwan has gone through a rapid democratization in the past 40 years. Civil groups have always paid attention to prevent the government from expanding its power in the name of emergency. Therefore, whenever, when, whenever the governmental policies are deemed to likely jeopardize citizens' rights, they would voice against the policies without any hesitations. For example, regarding the issue that to what extent can government use new technology or big data to trace people's travel records? And can the government can the government electronically monitor people who are ordered to say home quarantine? These questions are the focal concern of human rights NGOs. They have held press conferences, contact legislators like me, and written opens uh, on the newspaper until the government promised that all the private information collected during the pan uh, pandemic will be deleted according to Personal Data Protection Act. Another example is about the migrant workers. When one illegal migrant worker was, co uh, was confirmed COVID-19 positive, activists working on migrant workers' rights immediately asked media and the government not to discriminate against all the legal or illegal migrant workers. The command center soon announced that it was not the right time to deal with the illegal migrant workers issue because only the, only the illegal migrant workers with the doubt of infection are willing to seek for medical examination. As a society, can we fight against this pandemic altogether? It might be the reason that what happened in Singapore did not become the issue in Taiwan. In addition, medical doctors' unions also play an important role in counterbalancing government's policies toward medical staff. Although they are not all uh, successful all the time, the unions managed to push the Ministry of Health and Welfare revising compensation policy for those who take care of the confirmed patients on the front line. Uh, however, from my observation, compared to the past, the criticisms from the civil group have been quite self-controlled in order not to rock the ball at this critical time. The last keyword is solidarity. Solidarity, okay. Although Taiwan has been unfairly excluded from the international organizations like WHO and the UN, the civil society in solidarity with the government have demonstrated Taiwan's strong willingness to help the countries in need as good global citizens. There are several, several examples. First of all, Taiwanese people get together to speak up. A well-known YouTuber initiated a donation drive to put an ad on New York Times in April. This ad 
express Taiwanese citizens' will to team up with everyone in need on this world. Within just within 15 hours, the YouTuber garnered approximately US $1 million in donations from more than 26,000 Taiwanese sponsors. The final version of the advertisement was published following a vote among uh, those followers. Here is the final version. If you uh, if you haven't seen uh, that, you know, on the New York Times, who can help uh, Taiwan? Okay. Uh, besides, when the national team of mask mask factories start to produce enough surgical masks for all the Taiwanese people to use. Just within half day, there are more than 1 million mask, masks donated through digital software to let the government uh, send the masks to the countries in need. Many Taiwanese people express that they are willing to save their rationed masks to strengthen protection for the frontline medical staff in severely affected country. In conclusion, Taiwan can help. In solidarity, Taiwanese civil society is helping with our government. More importantly, in a time of isolation, Taiwan and the Taiwanese society, civil society choose solidarity to work hand in hand with the world to overcome this global challenge. Thank you. This is my presentation. Thank you very much, Professor Fan. Now we turn to uh, Hoover Fellow Lanny Chen. Well, thank you, Glenn. Thank you uh, for the opportunity to be part of this event and be part of uh, the discussion today. Uh, I want to share a few thoughts about uh, lessons for the international community in thinking about Taiwan's response to the COVID-19 pandemic. And I'll offer three thoughts, three observations about ways in which uh, Taiwan's experience, the ex that we've seen uh, in, in terms of combating COVID-19, in terms of dealing with the challenges posed by the virus to civil society, uh, ways in which this can be uh, more broadly amplified around the world. Um, let me begin by saying that I think a lot of what we've heard and seen in this conversation today about the Taiwan model uh, is exportable to free societies around the world. Uh, I think that there are lessons to be learned about the value of amplifying certain elements of Taiwan's response, both from a public health perspective, but also from a governance perspective. So what do I mean by that? First of all, um, the way in which Taiwan has emphasized transparency, both in terms of the nature of the spread of the virus uh, within Taiwan, but also transparency with respect to the steps government is taking to deal with the challenges posed by COVID-19. Uh, the brand of transparency that we've seen uh, is not something that has been commonly applicable across different societies that have experienced uh, the challenges, public health and otherwise, posed by coronavirus. Taiwan specifically uh, has been quite out front in terms of being transparent about uh, about a number of different things about, uh, as I said, both its response, but also the challenges posed by the virus. And I think that that transparency uh, is crucial and key for countries around the world as they're thinking about communicating and discussing not only their response, but also their plans to deal with the virus going forward, because most public health experts do believe that uh, that this novel coronavirus is not just here for a single season, but potentially for recurrent uh, episodes later this year and until there is an effective vaccine found. So the transparency element of this is obviously very key. That transparency is in sharp contrast, obviously, to uh, the lack of transparency that we've seen from the PRC and from the Chinese Communist Party in its conversation and discussion regarding not only the spread of COVID-19 in mainland China, but also the origins of the virus as well. The second element of, uh, of Taiwan's so-called Taiwan model that might be exportable is the notion of intelligent thinking and design in public policy. 
And we've already heard significantly about the steps that Taiwan employed from a public health perspective to deal with the challenge, whether it was extensive contact tracing, the availability of testing, the use of quarantine and isolation for inbound travelers, as well as for those uh, in Taiwan who were affected by COVID-19. These are all hallmarks of an effective public health response. And rather than belabor the point with respect to the public health element of it, I'll just say that I think that a second element of the Taiwanese model, which is exportable, is the notion of intelligent thinking about public policy and intelligent design in a public policy response. You know, here in the United States, we are uh, obviously still dealing very significantly with the public health challenge posed by COVID-19, but also the economic challenge posed by the shutdown broadly that we've seen here in the U.S. There's been a tendency for some in the media here in the U.S. To argue that somehow Taiwan's model is not translatable to a society as large and diverse as the United States. And to be sure, Taiwan's population is considerably smaller and more homogenous than the population that we have here in the United States. But nonetheless, there are important lessons regarding economic recovery, regarding public health, regarding how different elements of society can come together, different elements of policymaking can come together to formulate a coherent and rational response in the event of crisis. And by the way, these lessons are not applicable uh, only to the current coronavirus situation, but also to future outbreaks of this virus or any other uh, pandemic that might affect the United States or other countries. So I think it's important to recognize that the intelligent design of public policy is very much an exportable factor uh, that the United States and other industrialized societies should look at as they're thinking about response to, uh, to coronavirus and to other pandemics. Um, the, the third element of this exportable Taiwan model is what traditionally has been considered the use of soft power. And this is something where Taiwan has excelled and it's Taiwan can help and Taiwan is helping campaign. Uh, this idea that a society can take some of its strongest elements, in Taiwan's case, the ability to manufacture, the ability to have ties to other countries uh, via economic ties, to export personal protective equipment, for example, to share best thinking about how medical experts and public health experts are dealing with the pandemic, to also share economic thinking about how a society can remain economically viable while dealing with the challenges posed by the virus. These kinds of, of, of sharing of knowledge, the sharing uh, of, of personal protective equipment, the sharing of elements of Taiwan's response with the rest of the world demonstrate that there is still a very important role for this kind of soft power diplomacy. And although the immediate effects and the immediate benefits of that diplomacy may not be visible today, they sow the seeds of a very important set of relationships around the world. In particular, Taiwan's ability to sow relationships with countries like Australia or countries within the European Union, or even here in the United States, where I noticed this morning a tweet from uh, U.S. Senator Cory Gardner of Colorado touting the receipt of 100,000 masks from Taiwan. These kinds of, uh, of elements of the use of soft power, the exercise of the tools that are readily available are, are dramatically uh, important to the future of Taiwan's relationships around the world and indeed for other countries thinking about ways to contribute and help. Uh, there is a lot of power in being able to demonstrate how you project the strongest elements of your domestic response internationally. And so I think in, in those three ways, the Taiwan model is certainly exportable uh, to other countries around the world and, and, and is, in fact, a model that other countries should look at uh, for an example. Let me offer two other thoughts about lessons for the international community. Secondly, I think that the current conflict between the United States and the People's Republic of China, which has, has obviously been escalating over these last several weeks, uh, does pose a serious challenge to Taiwan in terms of spreading the word about the good work that's happening both in Taiwan, as well as I noted earlier, uh, Taiwan's uh, ability to take its knowledge and understanding and spread that around the world. 
we've seen in a very dramatic way the impact of disinformation campaigns launched by the Chinese Communist Party, uh, blatant disinformation being spread here in even in the United States uh, regarding elements of China's response, the lack of transparency, as I noted earlier, these uh, all of these things which have been hallmarks of the PRC's response to coronavirus also pose a serious challenge to Taiwan. Now, what do I mean by that? Um, you are seeing in the current battle, for example, over whether Taiwan should be able to observe proceedings at the World Health Assembly next week, that is a microcosm of the challenge that the PRC poses to efforts of Taiwan to disseminate more information, more understanding, and more sharing uh, regarding its experience with COVID-19. Uh, the World Health Organization is a topic that uh, we don't have time to get into too much in our conversation today, but observers of this telecast, as well as others, will note the degree to which the People's Republic of China has opposed Taiwan's involvement at the World Health Assembly, in the World Health Organization more broadly. The vice president earlier outlined uh, in uh, quite dramatic detail the degree to which Taiwan has been kept out of World Health Organization technical meetings and proceedings. This uh, situation of the PRC blocking Taiwan's participation in the World Health Organization is a demonstration of the way in which the PRC's general strategy is interfering specifically with Taiwan's ability to communicate its message. And this uh, PRC challenge is very real and it's something that uh, industrialized and Western civilizations like the United States need to take seriously as we're thinking about, uh, about the best ways to disseminate good information and good thinking about how to counteract COVID-19. And so I, I think it's important to view the World Health Organization situation not as a small battle over whether Taiwan should be allowed to observe this meeting or the other, but more broadly part of a greater strategy that the PRC has put in place to influence multilateral organizations by placing leadership in those organizations that are sympathetic to the PRC's agenda more broadly, but also the ways in which the PRC has, has commandeered some of these organizations, quite frankly, uh, to advance a political agenda rather than the agenda for which those organizations were originally created to fight. The WHO is an organization that ostensibly exists to improve public health around the world and has surely done much important work over the many years of its existence. But unfortunately, over the last few months and years, it's been consumed with advancing a political agenda rather than a public health one. We can't blame the WHO entirely for that. And the point simply is that the PRC has been very effective at advancing its goals uh, via not only its disinformation campaigns, but more directly through the influence of multilateral organizations. And let me conclude with a final observation about a lesson the international community might draw. And that is that engagement with Taiwan continues to be important. That engagement can come in the form of bilateral engagement, such as with the United States and Taiwan strengthening its relationship via the signing of the Taipei Act. President Trump uh, and the Trump administration deserve a lot of credit, I think, for ensuring that the schematic for relationship with Taiwan is rooted in, uh, in mutual understanding, in mutual cooperation, but also in holding close to those values that we in the United States hold most dear. Values like adherence to the rule of law, freedom of press, democracy, and the institutions of democracy, the freedom to practice religion. These are all things that we in the United States value. And via a stronger bilateral relationship with Taiwan, the United States is able to ensure that these values are adhered to and amplified, not only in Taiwan, but in the Asia-Pacific region as well. So that bilateral engagement via the Taipei Act is a prime example of the way in which this relationship can be strengthened and expanded in years to come. But also via multilateral fora as well. We've talked about the World Health Organization, but ensuring Taiwan's participation in multilateral organizations like the WHO, like the International Civil Aviation Organization, like the World Intellectual Property Organization, these are all examples of situations where having engagement with Taiwan will help to ensure that best practices are disseminated around the world. 
And, and ultimately, if you're thinking about this set of lessons that we've seen here with the COVID-19 crisis, there is a broader applicability beyond public health and beyond coronavirus. And that is that this engagement where free societies come together to exchange best practices, best information, and the best thinking, this is really the only way that we can deal with challenges that cross national borders. Whether it's a pandemic like coronavirus, um, other scourges that will affect humankind, the importance of protecting intellectual property, the importance of, protect of protecting the free flow of goods and information across national lines, the only way that we can ensure that this continues is with the healthy exchange of information, of personnel, and of best thinking in fora, whether bilaterally or multilaterally. So thank you for the opportunity to share some of these thoughts regarding lessons for the global community. And I look forward to continuing the dialogue and discussion in this conversation as well as others. Glenn, back to you. Thank you very much, Lanhe. I would ask um, all of our panelists to activate the video uh, on their uh, on their feeds so that um, we can see you for the Q and A. And I invite our participants and the people who are joining us today to submit questions over the chat function for our panelists, uh, and we will take them as they come in. Um, but as my uh, moderator's role, I'd like to take the prerogative of posing the first question while we wait for the others to come in, and that is in countries around the world how to deal with the COVID-19 virus has become uh, a subject of deep partisan divide. I wonder if our commentators could comment on how Taiwan's experience bridging uh, various administrations and governments and the parties have switched power in the years that Taiwan's been laying the infrastructure for its response. What Taiwan's lessons with respect to bridging partisanship and working together as a nation um, might be for the world at large? I'll, I'll I'll get started, and I'm sure my colleagues in Taiwan will have uh, much more to say. So uh, during SARS, uh, the Taipei city government uh, and the, the central government are of different political parties. And so uh, in the beginning of the crisis during SARS, there were a lot of fighting on very basic uh, information like how long to quarantine people, how to establish a diagnostic criteria for SARS, how to uh, how to actually test people? How to you know put people under quarantine? What to do with the hospital that was infected? A lot of infighting. And so what happened was that uh, uh, the government set, put push a reset button basically. So it established a a SARS task force uh, and and invited a former minister, uh, Dr. Li Mingliang. Uh, uh, who already stepped down as minister uh, to be the head of the SARS task force and then invited a, uh, a, a former uh, uh, com commissioner of, of health for Taipei, uh, Dr. Ye Jingchuan. And uh, the two of them are colleagues at the, at the university. And so they could work together. And, but they are different political parties. So basically, they, they had this task force established and so that people from different political parties are cordial in deal, dealing with the crisis. Now, we're in an election year, you know, in the United States, and, and we have different political parties running different states, uh, and, and also with the federal government. I think there ought to be some sort of coordinated response uh, for the United States. So that's the lessons learned from SARS of dealing with different political parties. Thank you. Uh, uh, Wen Zhen, would you like to yes. contribute? Yes, I'm sorry the camera uh, is not working, but I just want to say that, as I said, the very elaborate nature of the CDC Act also helps this time because of the pre-arrangement of the central and local authorities. So right now we have quite a few counties uh, that uh, is with the uh, Kuomintang's uh, control, while the central authority is with uh, DPP, uh, and yet uh, the Central local authorities arrangements and the power distributions between the two are uh, now this time very well written, uh, stipulated in the law. So I think that's also a uh, help uh, this time that we don't see the central local uh, government disputes because of uh, uh, fighting uh, to powers uh, for combating uh, coronavirus. Thank you. Um, Professor Fan, would you like to contribute a, a response? I'm 
the SARS outbreak, actually, uh, there are many medical staff, uh, they lost their life. So actually, it's really a hard lesson our medical community have learned. So I think after that uh, SARS outbreak, uh, the Taiwanese uh, medical community, they start to build many uh, spatial, uh, spatial um, uh, how to say, spatial, uh, 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 hospital rooms uh, equipped with a certain uh, a certain equipment. Uh, I, I don't know the English name last uh, with the, some pressure. So and actually uh, another lesson we learned from the SARS is that uh, during the SARS, actually uh, the case we do in Taiwan is the case of the so-called collective isolation. So that's one of the reasons that many medical staff, they have lost their life because they have been locked down in one central uh, hospital. So this time they try to use a more decentralized uh, strategy. So because we have already built up uh, some hospital with more uh, like a spatial room for treating uh, uh, treating the spatial uh, patients. So this time you will see that you know uh, in terms of the uh, the medical equipment. Uh, actually, you know uh, Taiwan uh, we have no problem with that. Okay. Thank you very much. Um, we have a question from a journalist asking whether our uh, panelists think that this year Taiwan might have a more visible role in WHO and other multilateral fora as a result of this crisis and the support that it's getting from members of the international community. I'll ask Glanhee to begin and if the others would like to, uh, to add comments, please do. Sure, Glenn. I, I think the United States has been particularly vocal uh, with respect to uh, Taiwan's inclusion in the upcoming World Health Assembly meeting uh, next week. I, I think the challenge all along has been that there is a, a sense that the current leadership <laughs> of the WHO under Dr. Tedros um, has been more interested in placating the PRC than perhaps we've seen uh, with other leaders. Now, over time, the, the WHO has had a series of different leaders, some of whom have been stronger than others, but it is certainly the case that the current leadership of the WHO, it's, I find it highly unlikely that pressure from, even from the United States and even from um, other countries, and, and the effort is not just the United States, other countries as well, Australia, France, have supported or spoken up in favor of Taiwan's inclusion uh, as an observer at the World Health Assembly meetings. Um, but I, I, I still find it to be difficult to believe that the, that the current leadership of the WHO, given what we're seeing now, would be willing to go against or would be willing to challenge the prevailing wisdom that's been applied uh, in this situation, which is that the PRC has a tremendous amount of control uh, over what Tedros does over what the organization does. So I, I'm skeptical um, that this pressure is going to, to bear fruit in the short run, but it's the right thing to do. It's the right thing for the United States and the Trump administration has been, uh, has been pretty, pretty vocal, as I said about this. And I think that's a good thing in terms of stressing the value to public health, because this is not really, in, in my mind, a political question, it's a public health question. And having Taiwan present at a time when the countries of the world will gather to discuss global response to the pandemic seems like a no-brainer to me. The idea that you would exclude Taiwan from that conversation is malpractice bordering on something even worse. So uh, we, we, we'll, we'll see what happens, but I am skeptical that uh, Tedros and the current WHO leadership will be swayed uh, by this campaign of influence that we're seeing from the U.S. and other countries. Thank you. If our other panelists would like to add anything, please um, take the initiative. Uh, say a couple words. Uh, so um, we're not only experiencing COVID-19. Uh, uh, during the last uh, uh, 20 years, we had had avian flu, MERS, swine flu, H1N1, right? And, and the majority of the, the viruses are coming from uh, China because of the close proximity of humans living next to livestock. Okay, so if you have humans living next to livestock, the virus would jump from humans to livestock and livestock to human and then mutate, uh, do its recombinant, uh, recombination and some of the genes will reshuffle. And then you have new virus. And why is that important for Taiwan to be included? 
is because well, there's a million people from Taiwan living in China, and they speak the same language. And so, if there's something happening in China, people will know what's going on. We'll get already got that information. You go to the hospitals, and there are a lot of people sick with something, and it's important for the world to know, because uh, if the world doesn't know uh, what virus it is, we cannot uh, produce the uh, the test to test for the virus. You need the virus to produce the test for the virus. You need the virus to produce vaccines for the virus and therapeutics for the virus. And so it's very important for WHO to be transparent about what's going on in order for the whole world to respond. The other thing is that um, this is the public health agenda and WHO out of any world organization should know the importance of being inclusive. This is common sense. Uh, I, I think this is going down to common sense. If you try to fire disease, you have to be transparent. You make a judgment on, you know, if this is a human to human spread, you have to release your records. How did you make the expert determination that this is not human to human transmission? Who are the experts who said that? What's the evidence that this is not human to human transmission? So the whole world could respond. That is the duty of the WHO. I'd ask our Taiwan uh, panelists to uh, to speak if they'd like to um, respond to the question. Taiwan just said in our Congress a few days ago, say it is still uh, unlikely that Taiwan can be part of the WHA conference, uh, even as observer. Uh, I believe sooner or later, of course, we want it sooner. Taiwan, Taiwan will be not only an observer, but a formal member of WHO uh, because uh, like uh, PLA, Palestinian Liberation Army, and the Red Cross organization, uh, they, they are also the observers of the WHO. So you don't need to be a sovereignty, you know, official sovereignty country to be the observers. So since Taiwan is already a de facto sovereignty, I think, you know, uh, unless we like China to, you know, do injustice things to Taiwan. So uh, otherwise, Taiwan should be a formal member of WHO and the WHA. Wenzhen, would you like to um, to add anything? Thank you, if I may. Uh, I think, well, uh, Taiwan has been a island state for very dense uh, population. And we have, I like uh, echo what uh, Jason has said. So we are very experienced in combating a lot of communicable diseases. And also, uh, we are a dis disaster-prone island. So, aside from uh, the CDC Act, I think the whole world will be surprised that in Taiwan, we have a very elaborate uh, disaster relief, prevention, and control act. And so, uh, in that act, there are a lot of elaborate regimes uh, uh, incorporated there. And I think we have a lot to offer to the world that through legal and regulatory measures that we combat a lot of challenges facing also other countries. So this is also a way that uh, if the world health regime or other international societies uh, not include Taiwan, it's a big loss to them as well. Thank you. Um, we have a, a tremendous number of questions about the WHO issue, but for the moment, I'd like to pivot to something slightly different. And that is, I wonder if I could ask our Taiwanese panelists to comment on the effect that disinformation about the virus, how it's transmitted, what potential treatments or cures might be, is affecting the domestic response to the virus within Taiwan and how Taiwan's government and civil society are responding. Could you say that again? You said how Taiwanese civil society and government respond to the treatment and the vaccine. Are you talking about that? Um, well, to disinformation and false information that may be circulating within Taiwan. Actually, in terms of uh, disinformation, uh, in, the, uh, in the election two years ago, the DPP, the now the ruling uh, government, uh, the ruling party, has suffered a lot because of the disinformation, and we believe, you know, is uh, 
manipulated uh, by the Communist Party from China. So actually, after that, you know, election uh, two years ago, the DPP government has already assigned uh, one digital minister to deal with the disinformation, especially on the internet, in a more efficient way. For example, they will use the sense of humor to clarify the disinformation within a few hours because people like to, you know, share something funny. So, you know, the way we uh, counterbalance the disinformation become much more efficient. And also, we also uh, revise a certain law to say if the disinformation is really uh, will harm the Taiwan's national security in a very serious way. Actually, uh, you might, you know, uh, the, the police might uh, come to ask, you know, whether there's a certain problem with that. But, uh, 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 but uh, actually, the press can be a little counter, uh, controversial, but actually has been very effective. Uh, especially by the, you know, the certain major uh, conducted by our digital minister. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. Professor Zhang? Yes, if I may, uh, I really like the way uh, Professor Fan Yun uh, uh, mentioned about all these creative ways that our civil society has developed for uh, combating, you know, rumors or misinformation about the virus. But I have to say that last year, uh, the uh, government uh, has already amended uh, one provision into the CDC Act to increase the administrative fines for those who spread rumors or misinformation or fake news uh, concerning those uh, serious communicable diseases. The fines are now up to $3 million. And also, uh, you also amended one provision to increase the responsibility of the central command authority uh, to not only combating, correcting all these uh, rumors, misinformation, but also to uh, immediately uh, trans, uh, uh, um, transport all these uh, uh, correct informations immediately throughout all media. I, I think these two uh, provisions uh, added last year also have had some impacts for uh, this time around. This concludes the panel portion of the program. I'd like to thank our speakers for their participation, especially those in Taipei for whom it is late in the evening. Again, for video of the keynote and closing portions of the event, please visit hoover.org or Hoover's YouTube channel. We invite you to follow the Hoover Project on Taiwan and the Indo-Pacific region at hoover.org, where you can join our announcement list and participate in our events. The Hoover Project on Taiwan and the Indo-Pacific region supports research and public dialogue about Taiwan's democracy and society and the pivotal position Taiwan occupies in a vast, strategic, and increasingly integrated swath of the world. The project sponsors a regular speaker series with appearances by leading scholars and policymakers from around the world, an annual conference, publications in traditional and social media, and teaching on the Stanford campus. It is made possible with the generous support of the Taipei Economic and Cultural Office. Thank you. <laughs>